Hello and welcome to a short, single segment in Moscow Shadow podcast on a topic I never thought I'd be discussing. Sport. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow Shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. This is clearly triggered by last night's Euros football contest, in which, as a half-Italian Brit... I could have been so easily torn by irreconcilable loyalties had I not taken the easier option of not really caring that much. I'm not particularly sporty as a person, either interests or activities. But on the other hand, what is interesting about sport is precisely how it acts as a mirror to so many characteristics of particular societies. And therefore, I thought it might be quite interesting to look at what, for me, are some particular distinctive aspects of where sport fits into modern Russia. First of all, as a national project. Now, look, every country, to some degree, looks at sport as a way of demonstrating its national virility, the, I mean, why that would have any real bearing, effectiveness of the government and the like. Um, And, you know, obviously... Italy and Britain will both be going through different stages of that particular process. And particularly, it also tends to have a geopolitical dimension. Um, When, for example, the American ice hockey team pulled off the so-called Miracle on Ice victory over the Soviet Union in 1980, that was very much spun as some kind of rebuff for the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan. And likewise, the whole business of the tit-for-tatting of um, boycotts and the like over the subsequent Olympics, you know, very much demonstrate the extent to which actually, you know, we, we, we shouldn't pretend that sport has ever been separated from issues of countries and how they position themselves, how they project themselves as being somehow mighty in the world stage because of sport. We really don't even want to go back to how Nazi Germany again, try to play the game. But of course, in modern Russia, there's also the fact that Putin himself has built quite a bit of his own personal uh, persona around this notion of him as the fit and sporty chief executive. It's not just the the judo and so forth, it's also his uh, ice hockey night league in which he invariably ends up trouncing a team of cronies and supplicants, and is always uh, fated for his extraordinary prowess. Well, maybe, maybe not. In, ma- in many ways, therefore, for Russia, this represents a kind of generalisation out from Putin's own status. And so, in Russia, this clearly still really matters, in a way that obviously it did for the Soviet Union. And if one looks, for example, at the fact that it's not just simply about our resources being devoted to supporting up-and-coming sports people and teams and the like. You know, we only have to look at the quite extraordinary 
institutionalized doping that was carried out through the means of the Federal Security Service. I mean, can one really imagine situations in which the CIA and the FBI or MI5s and 6 would be involved in actually trying to support national sports teams? I find that hard to believe. But again, it gives us a sense of just how important it is not just to play the game, but to win the game for the current Russian leadership. And again, I suppose one could say it also plays to the whole kind of national psyche of, well, not the national, so let me rephrase that, the psyche of a particular group of Russians. Again, this, this last Homo Sovieticus generation, for whom this is one of the ways of regaining past glories. But there's also a particular thing about making sure that Russia gets to host all kinds of major world sporting events. And in part, this is about soft power, the chance to demonstrate to people that, that Russia can, can put on good events and such like. And in part, it's also about legitimacy. It's getting people to Russia demonstrates that Russia is not isolated, that Russia is indeed still a significant uh, figure within the world stage. And, I mean, one can point to the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics as a sort of a classic um, example the 2018 Football World Cup. And, you know, it, it continues. Uh, I, I was actually having a look. I certainly do not have this kind of information at the tip of my fingers normally. In 2019, amongst many events that were held, was the Women's World Drafts Championship and also the Winter Universiade in Krasnoyarsk. They're very keen on these kind of you know, university games. And lo and behold, Russia won that one. Uh, South Korea came second, Japan came third. The point is, again, even just simply the holding of events matters. Now, again, not unique to Russia. It tends to be precisely, or should I say, authoritarian semi-pariah states that have a particular incentive in trying to attract these events. And yes, Qatar, with your 2022 World Cup, I am looking at you. But again, it means that what we might think of as just simply about sport with a side order of business really does become a matter of geopolitical importance for countries that feel all the more insecure about their place in the world. But anyway, I mentioned business. Of course, again, sport is big business for everyone everywhere, whether it's advertising, whether it's sponsorship, whether it's producing the appropriate um, you know, football kit, or whether it's being uh, tapped to build new stadia and the like. I mean, that matters everywhere. But again, we have this quite distinctive Russian twist. Now, fortunately, Russian sport today is not like Russian sport in the 1990s. In other words, it's not basically a front for organised crime and embezzlement. I mean, the particularly sort of extraordinary case was of the National Sports Foundation, which in 1993 was granted uh, major tax concessions on imports. And not just that, but perversely enough, it was imports of what? Tobacco and alcohol. Just the kind of commodities that contribute to health and fitness. But anyway, what this meant was that in 1994 alone, the National Sports Foundation ended up importing enough untaxed, or I'm not sure if it was always untaxed, in some cases it was just a reduced tax rate, but anyway, untaxed or semi-taxed cigarettes and booze to get a $4.2 billion tax break. 
Now, some of that, as was intended, went actually to supporting sport, keeping up facilities and such like. A lot of it, of course, stuck to the fingers of a whole hierarchy of individuals. And look, I clearly wouldn't want to be pointing fingers. At the, t- you know, at the time, the head of the foundation was Shamil Tarpishev, who was Boris Yeltsin's own tennis coach. And, you know, obviously a figure who definitely didn't seem to do too badly in that era. He was actually sacked in 1996, precisely um, surrounded by swirling charges of corruption. Of course, the National Sports Foundation wasn't the only one that was involved in this, when there was also the Ice Hockey Federation that also had had its own very, very lucrative um, tax breaks. And so much so that these actually became the subject of what we really would think of as mob rivalries. In, I think it was 1997, Valentin Sitch, who was head of the um, Ice Hockey Federation, he was actually um, assassinated by contract killing. And I think it was a year before, maybe, Boris Fyodorov, who had actually replaced Tarpishev as head of the National Sports Foundation, well, he survived an attempted contract killing. Now, who knows what other fingers in what other pies they might have had, which could have triggered them. But nonetheless, you know, if we look at the way that in the 1990s, sport really just became the excuse in many cases for massive institutionalised embezzlement processes. You know, that, 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 that's a rather sobering view. Now, that is not what we see now. Now we see a rather different pattern, that sponsoring sport, a little bit like sponsoring the church, has become a way whereby major corporations, big business, oligarchs and so forth get to demonstrate their commitment, their loyalty to the nation and to the system. And, I mean, again, it's interesting now, for example, was once upon a time, various institutions of the Soviet state were often directly connected with particular competing teams. And the, and the classic example was football in Moscow, where you had CSKA, which is the team which basically was sponsored by the Red Army, and then Dynamo, which was the KGB and police team. I mean, there, are, there were clearly other teams as well, Lokomotiv, which was supported by, guess what, the railway industry, and uh, I think Spartak. Spartak didn't actually have a kind of a clear and, and direct patron, but then there was Torpedo, which I think was the Zil Car Works, but... Don't take my word for it. Again, this is not really my comfort zone, this kind of minutiae of Soviet sport. But anyway, the the point is, once upon a time, the institutions were the backers of different teams. Now it's much more likely to be particular corporations and particular individual benefactors who are associated with different teams. Now, you do this exactly to, to demonstrate your loyalty. And why do you do that? Well, because this is a monetizable commodity. Because by doing so, You hope to buy yourself favour, favour that can be used to whether it's avoid the negative consequences of other acts you're doing or often to get contracts. And this is a fascinating thing if one looks, for example, at uh, the Sochi Winter Olympics. I think the official figure was that 215 billion rubles were spent on the Games. And particularly a lot of it was on the the building of the facilities, the roads and such like, which were in the main phenomenal opportunities for embezzlement. I mean, really on quite an extraordinary scale. 
But the interesting thing is that a lot of the player, I say players, I don't mean this in the sporting sense, but in the economic sense, uh, who were involved in getting the, the, the contracts and therefore had wonderful opportunities to do so, had already basically pledged money. They'd already come forward and said, oh, I'm perfectly happy to do X because this is important to, to the nation. So they spent a bit in order to get a hell of a lot back. It's a good investment. I think we should see often supporting sport these days, given the importance of sport to the, to the national mythology and to Putin and a lot of people around him personally, supporting sport should be considered precisely as a good investment. And the third element, why, for example, was, was Sochi so important for Putin? Because after all, Putin wasn't going to make any money out of it. He doesn't need to. He's got all the, the Russian Federation as his piggy bank. Well, one of the key reasons is precisely that this is about soft power, as I mentioned before. This is about projecting a different kind of Russia, not the kind of Russia that people read in their newspapers or see on television, not the Russia of authoritarianism and corruption, but rather uh, a Russia that is confident, a Russia that is competent, and a Russia that is welcoming. And, I mean, this has actually been really quite quite visible. If, if Think back to the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. Now, in fairness, there was a lot of snarky and critical Western media coverage beforehand. Um, and, and, and with some reason, it was obviously being built, in some cases, on the cheap, but above all, in a, in, in a rush, with some... Very strange design choices. I remember the infamous case of the toilet stalls with two toilets, as if people were going to sit side by side in a congenial elimination. But actually, once the game started, you know, in the main, they were frankly something of a triumph. Even I was struck that there was the opening, um, very obviously, as all of these things are, grandiloquent uh, festivities to to open the event where there was this embarrassment where of the various Olympic rings that went to kind of open up and light up at a key point, one of them didn't. OK, fair enough, these things happen. But then, interestingly enough, at the closing ceremonies, actually the Russians poked fun at themselves, precisely with a, you know, deliberately non-opening and then other things happening um, ring. So it was interesting because in many ways it did show a different kind of Russia. A Russia that was um, less prickly, that was more comfortable with itself, even willing to actually poke fun at itself. I mean, that could have, I mean, not just the, the closing festivities, but the whole event, you know, could have been a very useful soft power move had it not been for the minor detail that then shortly thereafter they annexed Crimea, started their adventure in the Donbass and such like. But there was this interesting article in the British Journal of Politics and International Relations, and as ever, I'll, I'll give a link in the programme notes, that, that, for example, particularly looked at RT, the uh, international broadcaster, Russian international broadcaster, which you know, is essentially a, a tool of Russian propaganda in the main, not in every respect, but in the main. Um, and, and they noted, actually, that, that RT was really quite able to, as they put it, bridge the credibility gap. That even though, yes, everyone knew that it was basically an in-house mouthpiece of the Kremlin, you know, but nonetheless, it managed to, by not being too ridiculously propagandistic, use Sochi as an opportunity to reach out 
and convey positive messages about Russia that didn't just come across as if it was a why Russia is wonderful and everyone else is absolutely ghastly. This is also very visible in the 2018 World Cup. Now, again, there was all kinds of concerns beforehand about whether or not Russia would be able to get the, the facilities ready, whether or not it would just simply whether or not it would work for foreigners, you know, who on the whole don't speak Russian, uh, who you know, don't necessarily know their way around this country. And yet, again, it was, I think it's fair to say, something of a triumph, ranging from the fact that, you know, a, a lot of the stadia and so forth were ready that there was this uh, waiving of the often quite exigent uh, visa rules for, for fans. Then there was an institution that was particularly evident at the time, even though it predated the World Cup, which is the tourist police in Moscow and St. Petersburg and a few other cities, who were not there to police the tourists, but precisely instead to be the, the friendly face of Russian law enforcement with foreign languages to boot. You know, so one way or the other, they, they put on you know, a pretty damn good show. And on one level, it absolutely worked. Opinion polls thereafter showed, in fact, there was a you know, really quite substantial bump up, at least for a little while, in how people thought about Russians and Russia, and that they didn't think of it as being quite so hostile. Okay, but this is the point I want to close on. What's also fascinating is that this went both ways. And in many ways, what actually happened was something like the World Cup subverted a key central line of the Kremlin's propaganda, its legitimating narrative. Because it's not just that foreigners got a slightly more positive view of Russians. There was actually a much, much more striking degree to which Russians polled acquired a better perspective of foreigners. And indeed, were much less likely to agree with the proposition that Russia has enemies. So that in this respect, given that you know, a central theme, as I've said in so many past podcasts, is that the Kremlin is trying to legitimise itself with its own population by basically telling them that they live in a beleaguered fortress surrounded by enemies, that in fact this soft power weapon cut both ways. And what you ended up with, well, was harmony. And isn't that meant to be what sport's about? Anyway, thank you very much indeed for listening to this brief exploration of what for me is, it has to be said, a relatively alien concept, that is, paying attention to sport. But nonetheless, I hope you found it of interest. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.